Welcome to the Aussie Nerds Podcast. I'm Daniel, and today, John has brought in his favourite movie, Dark City. And, you, and that's the title because it's city and it's fucking dark. How's it going, John? Very good. Why did you bring in Dark City? Um, well, I tend to listen to films more than watch them when I'm working, but Dark City is one of the films that, when I put it on, I tend to actually stop working and watch because... The imagery is absolutely unique. I mean, you could say it's not unique now, but... Um, it's only because it came... people copied it. Yeah. And it still has a certain something of its own. I think the O'Brien performance, um, which all the other strangers then base their performances on, and the, and the basic premise is captivating. And so are the performances, I would have to say. Um, like people have seen Rufus Sewell now in um, Man in the High Castle, where he plays one of the Nazis. But um, there's a deliberate choice in terms of how they're doing their acting in this film because of the amnesia angle, the way that um, their entire character is actually confected within the reality of the film. So as it says in one of the lines, they may be a policeman one day and something completely different the next. So it's got all, all the classic elements of a mystery and it's got this, what the actual uh, writer-director called the mystery clock, which is a spiral that repeats all through the film. So um, you've got a murder mystery angle, you've got a psychological thriller angle, and quite hard science fiction, as it turns out, angle. But then oh. you've, got, you've got a very personal story about his quest for Shell Beach. And that's actually, that particular part of it is what I think keeps bringing me back, the Shell Beach thing. I just want everyone to know that usually I don't give a shit about spoilers, uh, for this podcast, I do. We're still going to spoil it, but I, I'm telling you that you have to see it. It's really good, and it's really interesting to follow this mystery. Yeah, it is. Uh, it so is. Shell Beach is... Uh, it, it, it can symbolise so much. It's the exit to the maze. Uh, we open with... We have a scene... There's a scene in a maze with two mice. The first mouse represents our main character, and then the uh, the doctor introduces a second mouse when he introduces his wife to also be part of the um, of the his story. Uh, yeah. that that's I, I like that. I like details that um, that stand out like that. They go to a lot of effort in Dark City to use absolutely classical approaches to film and then take you from 1920s experimental film and sort of the beginning of noir to 1940s type noir detectives dark city you know city at night and lights and but then they put in these very odd artistic touches like the maze which is actually lit from underneath um and, and it just takes it over the edge into being something really special. And the same with the 1920s-style fashion of the strangers, of the antagonists, these um, mysterious pale men in black, literally men in black. Um, yeah, it's, it's visually, even though it's all very dark, it's absolutely stunning. Real labour of love, quite obviously a labour of love. When something's set in the dark, you have to be very careful about how you light it. Yeah. And I think that 
uh, the way this is presented with, uh, I like that they, they said that the bodies were um, the bodies of the dead, of dead humans. Yeah. So that's why they look similar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's really creepy because that kid's dead. Well, that's right. All, all of the strangers, all the men in black, as they say, we use the bodies of your dead as our vessels. And the way that, to begin with at least, when they first encounter the protagonist, is arguable whether you could call him a hero, although they're the ones who've made him what he is. Um, they're quite amused because, as they say, where are you going? This city's ours. We built it. So you can't get a higher stakes existential quest than that, being told that you're in, an, in the labyrinth, they own the labyrinth, they control it completely, and there's no way out. So then the gauntlet's thrown for an existential quest, and I think the film pays off. I think a lot of these films don't because there's an arbitrary turning point where it's handed to the hero or the protagonist on a plate, just like the, a switch is thrown, and then, oh, yeah, final act, it's all, it's all fine. Um, I, well, mean, an ele- I mean, there's an element of that in The Matrix almost where he just flies off like Superman, whereas in this it, one... In this turned, one, he's given the memories at the yeah. end uh, with, all, with the uh, scientist being there like, no, you've got to concentrate, you've got to do this, and then he yeah. does all the Superman stuff. Yeah. So there's an element to that in this as well. There is. It's just, I think, and it's deliberately left open to question, to what extent the scientist in Dark City is responsible for Murdoch? Because Murdoch tends to see himself as the, as the acts go on in the film, as a classic, to himself anyway, like, you know, self-made. Like he's making himself, he's elevating himself with the encouragement of the scientists. But in point of fact, because of the control the scientist has within the story when he's working for the, for the creatures, it seems like some people certainly think as though he's actually set all of this up. The scientist has actually out-manipulated the manipulators. But it's, I, I was thinking that as well. Like, but, it's difficult, but it's difficult to know because um, I, I used to firmly think that just because of the way the scientist was... Um, he's effectively the... He's the Obi-Wan, he's the mentor, he's the wizard, he's the answer guy, you know, and, and particularly because they use the noir symbolism of the phone box and telephone calls. It begins with that interruptive telephone call that breaks the pattern and sets the story in motion. But then, I don't know, it's hard to know because like the coda at the end, which I don't want to spoil anything about the end other than it's got a more heart versus mind kind of denouement rather than a classic simplistic, I've taught you, here's your lightsaber, blow the Death Star up, thank you, good night. It's a bit more than that. And... Um, it's just interesting that the strangers begin as the puppet masters trying to manipulate. And very, very early in the film, what would normally be the big payoff in the third act just gets thrown away, just gets disposed of in a couple of lines between the strangers and Murdoch. Just the whole, the whole what would normally be the, in a typical American film, for example, the whole point of the film is just disposed of and you move on. Um, it's just interesting, like, what what's going to happen after the end of the film, really? What's going to happen? Because um, this is a reality which is entirely ordered, manipulated and ordered and maintained. It's like a garden with a gardener. It's ordered, but it was ordered by the um, by the aliens, and then it's yeah. ordered by Murloc. Yeah. And yeah. what happens once he dies? What happens to yeah. literally everything? Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, that's interesting. You said that you wouldn't want a sequel to this, and I can see why. Well, look, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want the kind of sequel that typical executive producers at a studio would make. Is what I'm saying. Oh, I yeah. think that I think that this could easily have a comic book sequel or a film sequel or a Netflix series sequel. But you would have to continue, not just the simplistic surface element. You would have to look at kingship, succession, and so on. Because what would happen if children were finally born in this city? Can they be born in this city? See, they've taken, as, it, as the alien says, we've taken things from different times and places. One of the things that a film critic said about this, and he's discussing it with, with Goya, David Goya, one of the, the writers who did a script breakdown as well, is um, are we seeing any living people in this film at all, in fact? That's interesting. Yeah, it isn't it, isn't it? Because it's not something that initially sort of occurred to me. I, I thought in terms of, I don't know, maybe they could get back to Earth, but if they do, what, what year would it be kind of thing? Like what year did they come from? But this film critic picked up on something that came from... Alex Proyas, uh, he's the real creator of this, the real auteur of it. Uh-huh. He, had a rec- he had a recurring nightmare, which was the basis of this script when he was a child at the age of 10 through to the age of 12. And then it started recurring when he was an adult. And then he made the film and that's kind of exercised the demons for him. But in this nightmare, there were cemetery people. There were dead people who came out of graves and then lived in houses of the dead. They weren't zombies, but they weren't alive. And the strangers from this film were the almost like jailers. They were like the dungeon keepers and they controlled the dead people. And you can see in the film, knowing that changes everything about this film again. If um, that we already know that they can control the uh, dead bodies, that's how they are moving around. Yeah. So if everyone is also dead yeah. and they're installing memories, that would be an interesting thing. I'm glad that they didn't tell us. Well, this is a film that illustrates why in a visual medium like film, you must not explain everything because you've got, engage, you've got to engage with your audience. That's a big thing in American movies. Like yeah. how many critics have complained that like Endgame doesn't explain everything? Like oh, how Jesus. Yeah. Captain America got back? I don't oh. give a shit how Captain America came back. It was oh. a great scene. That's the point. And also, if you care, you'll work it out, won't you? If you care, then you can make it up. Yeah, yeah. Fill in the blanks. Yeah. Do some of your own work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hate being over-explained to stuff. Like uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, wonderful film. No one explains how she got her powers. No one explains why she has to go on a gap year. No one explains shit. I love nice. it. But why would you need it as well? It slows everything down. Exactly. This is, why, this is why, with very few exceptions, I loathe prequels. Because prequels inevitably end up being, and that's why he wears horns kind of thing. And oh, I my just, God. I, like, um... I, just, I, just, I just don't care. I, I really don't care. And I've had so many arguments about Games of Thrones prequels lately with people where I just say, look, you know how it ends. So why, in the name of God, would you want to watch the leader? particularly when the payoff was so bad. Why would you want to watch the lead-up? Go forward. Same with, same with Star Wars. Just, just go forward. Have the confidence to go forward. But no. Yeah. Or, since it's a huge universe... Exactly. Pick something. Have a new story. Yeah. Like, exactly. the origins of the Jedi uh, would be interesting. Something like that. But I don't give a fuck about Darth Vader. 
I, he's a giant space Nazi who runs around in a stupid cape. And it's That's all played it. out anyway. It's been done to death. Mm-hmm. Every, um, every minute of every hour of every week of month of year of somebody's life does not have to be transferred to film. And Law of Diminishing Returns is proving that people are just sick to death of it. You need something fresh. I, I um, don't want a prequel to see how they got to the Dark City. If anything, well, yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, I want like a sequel to show where they go from there. That'd be interesting, right? Especially if it's they don't just go back to Earth. But what if what if they can control like one person per generation can control it? How will the next person do it? That stuff would be interesting. But I don't give a fucking how they got there. They were abducted by aliens. That's how. I think one of the things that um, both Proyas himself and Goya both said, because they were flying back from America to Australia where they made the film. This together. is an Australian uh, film? It's made, made in Sydney, yeah. Sweet. I'll claim ownership of that. You can kind of tell just by the visual effects and the physical effects, because they built, a, I think it was one 16th scale city or something, a, hu- a huge physical city set. But um, Proyas, and, or Proyas and Goya, when they were discussing it, that's when Proyas admitted to Goya that it was based on real-life nightmares and he really thinks something like The Strangers is real. The director actually thinks, thought then, still does, there's something like that in reality, that it isn't simple in reality. It's not simple space aliens and abductions and the military doing it and secret space programs. There is something wildly more odd that has to do with life, death, what we think of as reality and so on. And Goya, who was sitting there, was just thinking, well, that explains a few things about the writing process of this script. That explains <laughs> a few things, which would have been good to know when we were doing a draft of it that was difficult, but anyway. And then um, Rufus Sewell, the star, the guy who plays Murdoch, uh-huh. um, was interviewed about why he thought the film wasn't successful. And he said, oh, I think it came out at the wrong time. And I think the studio didn't get behind it because they were disappointed in how it turned out, even though we all told them. And then they kept on saying to us, the audience doesn't get it. The audience doesn't get it. And then he, he said in the interview, and you know what? I couldn't give a fuck. Fuck the audience. We need a better, <laughs> we need a better audience. If that's, if that's the audience they put it to, they put it to the wrong audience because this is a very clever film. That's a, hilarious real, because, with a, like, with a real message. And the Matrix the interview... came out like a month, uh, like a year later, and that has yeah. like uh, philosophy and yeah. all that stuff. But the studio supported it. Yeah, that's the that's the main difference between the Matrix and Dark City. Yeah, the studio the studio orphaned Dark City, making it a self fulfilling prophecy that it would make a lot of money. Even though it's an art film, it's an art film. It's a very personal film. And he's always been disappointed it wasn't a commercial success as well because he's a commercial director. But I mean, Bill Murray in The Razor's Edge, that goes back decades. That was his personal project, not a vanity project, but a personal project. The remake of The Razor's Edge was never embraced, was a bomb. People said stick to comedy. He never forgave anybody for that. And um, that's why he got out of comedy and started doing serious films for so long, to prove the point that The Razor's Edge was a good film. And, and basically, no one's seen it. I really like that film. I've never no heard of it. Well, I mean, they buried it. Oh, fair enough. The, the Iron Giant was like that. Yep. Warner Brothers Animation had, like, The Iron Giant came out, right? And the studio didn't think it'd make any money, so they didn't market it at all. So and guess what? So money. you don't market it? Yeah, exactly. 
you don't market something from a commercial studio, can you guess what happens next, folks? That's right. No marketing budget, no return. Exactly. And, 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 and producers go to war with each other by doing this as well. The different produce, producers in their offices sort of caltrop each other and sabotage each other and the films suffer. But hey, that's studios, folks. That's how they work. Um, one of the more interesting ones is The Greatest Showman because yeah. that yeah. is not a great movie or yeah. even a particularly good movie, but it has a soundtrack. It's and, the one he wanted to make for years as well. Yeah, and it's a passion project. It didn't make any money. And then, like, everyone started covering it on YouTube mm. because the uh, music was so fun. And so they immediately were like, oh, fuck, let's use that as marketing. So, like, they just had this big campaign where they showed everyone's covers of the songs. That's how you market a film, a dead film that no one saw, and then immediately everyone saw it. I'll tell you something about Dark City, though. It is a little bit like Blade Runner, the first couple of decades of Blade Runner. Where I was thinking Blade Runner. It wasn't, wasn't a huge success at the time. Blade Runner certainly wasn't. Everybody pretends it was, but it really wasn't. Well, but, um, they, they made Blade Runner. It didn't make any money. So they're like, I know what we'll do. We'll make Blade Runner 2049, and it didn't mm. make any money. Mm. But other than the words Blade Runner, there's not much in common between the two films, really. Yeah, true. Only superficial resemblances. But Dark City's got its own, it's got two, well, really three distinct groups of fans who are fanatical fans, true fans. People like me just love it as a film, sort of horror, noir, whatever. Film buffs love it. It's got a whole separate thing where people write their own stories. And um, it's not even really like a convention circuit thing, but it's inspired all these people to do quite adult-oriented noir stories comics and books and websites very odd and the third and final group are um well they're members of things like the process church of the final judgment they're people who um see it as a documentary basically oh dear yeah but it's it's um when you've got a film that manages to fairly directly adapt somebody's actual dream vision or nightmare uh -huh. really really in a raw way you know not filtering it at all that can relate to these a lot of films tend to be more because other people that's right other people share the nightmare or have experiences that overlap and the same way you know the matrix or red pill blue pill you know break out of the matrix all the conspiracy guys who use that as their shorthand which is so dumb and like, <laughs> i i, I I'll get into it with the actual Matrix episode, yeah, but like, yeah, of course, yeah. the, the, that's not what the red pill, blue pill means. For starters. Yeah, for starters. On, on other starters, anyone who says that is just being a dick. Well, I just always wonder at their motives anyway, to be quite honest. Yeah. I, 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 I don't see <laughs> that as being an altruistic um, sort of approach to take to something as serious as governments, conspiracies, intelligence agencies, and so on. I just think um, it's a very unhelpful approach, and it's sort of in, almost invoking the supernatural again. Uh, I just think that's, I just think it's wrong. It's wrong-headed, and it's wrong. And I think people who do it are usually up to something. And it's yet another type of hate speech, really. Um, but Dark Cities, uh, the the real agenda of the film is to communicate what the director, writer-director was haunted by, and it does that perfectly because there are lines in the film which were fragments he remembered of the dreams, like Shell Beach, the uncle, the aquarium, and some of the actual speech that they have O'Brien say as the stranger. 
um, and the chattering teeth that O'Brien did. Um, O'Brien sat and listened to the director telling him about his nightmares that he'd had and imitated what the director told him well enough to freak the director out for the day. So you're getting a real rendition of an actual nightmare creature with the stranger. And, That's really um, cool. Well, you can just tell though. I mean, it's um, you've got the elements of the real life sleep disorder nightmare entities that are officially recorded documented symptoms of different types of sleep disorder. You've got the grinning man, which is the chattering when they do that weird grin. You've got the man in the hat or top hat, as he's called, which is one of the so-called shadow people that some sleep disorder sufferers see, hallucinate. Um, you've got all of it. And you've even got in the Jennifer Connelly love interest character. And then you've got Melissa George from Neighbours, who plays the prostitute um, in a sort of there, there and gone kind of role. Although in the director's cut, the longer cut, she's in it more. Um, you've got classical dream girls as well. You've got the sexually available harlot prostitute type, but she's, she's the hooker with the heart of gold. She's very friendly and maternal and caring for him and protective of him. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you've got the weirdly distant dream wife deliberately cast with somebody who, as another film critic said, Jennifer Connelly never made it to the top of the A-list, but because of her sexual characteristics, her, her very curvaceous sexy body, she is always number one or close to number one of um, sexiest women of her era. No, no normal heterosexual male will ever forget Jennifer Connelly from the moment they've seen her as an adult in a role. So you've got this perfect wife who is played by her perfectly as almost cryptamnesic. Like her performance and William Hurts, for that matter, as the cop are off, completely off, off base because they're playing sleepwalkers. So she is somebody who should be so loving and supportive. And she is that to the Murdoch character, but not in a way that allows a real emotional connection. And then you see them between a pane of glass, which he breaks. But the moment he breaks the pane of glass, they're separated. So there's never a cathexis. There's never a payoff with that character until he can eventually um, reorder things more to his liking. But he goes through the film without that happening. So you have these other elements of dreams and nightmares, the unattainable woman and the attainable woman who he can't fulfill himself with and so on. It's, it's quite amazing. And another thing I really like is um, the, the music, especially the incidental music more than the, the main thing. The main thing's classic Australian film music of its era, but the incidental music, this sort of spooky, haunting music, particularly when the stranger meets the wife and they're looking out over the water, which is quite Sydney Harbour at night in appearance, the lights reflected and so on. Um, they have that magnificent exchange about, I met my husband here. Well, I met my wife here. It's small very world. But, but when he goes, small world, perfect, perfect. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> it just nails it. And then, of course, the whole Shell Beach. The and Shell the Beach thing is great. Oh, because oh, it's yeah. not real, right? It's a sign on a wall uh, that they use for billboards and stuff. But it's they like Barton Fish. Press train to Shell Beach just to be a prick. <laughs> and it loops. Mm-hmm. All of the all of the trains loop because it's, it's in that clever. spiral shape. Yeah, but like Barton Fink, in Barton Fink, there's the um, painting on the wall that he keeps looking at, and at the end of Barton Fink, 
he's sitting on the beach and the girl from the painting is sitting near him and looks back at him, which is actually impossible, isn't it? So that tells you that Barton Fink occurs in a magically real or magic realism milieu. Dark City does the opposite. It actually starts as an irreal or imaginal world, which through classic existential act of will, he brings into a kind of more down-to-earth real state where you have, I'm not going to say exactly what, but at the end of the film, there's a colossal emotional payoff, but there's also an actual physical shift, which tells you that um, the calendar itself has changed. Time has resumed, because as long as it's this dark city, time isn't actually passing. It isn't actually passing, it's replaying. Everyone is, uh, which is, it says a lot about the tropes of film noir that I didn't notice until it was pointed out that everything happens at night. Mm. Um, and then uh, when it was pointed out, I'm like, you slick bastard. <laughs> you used the, my shorthand for film tropes against me. <laughs> well done. It's a classic. It's great. Uh, and, it's, and it's playing off the tropes of film noir and detective stories, which but is... Prius even goes shot for shot, um, image for image at times, though, like the phone box is from um, a German silent sort of proto-noir murder mystery. Um, the Doctor himself, Kiefer Sullivan's character, is dressed in a classical 20s, 30s sinister noir character kind of way. But there's individual shots where you've got a lit room or a lit building against a black city like a just a jet black dark city where you zoom in because he had this big physical model he could do this you see um these tracking shots and dolly shots just absolutely sell you on the reality of the city to the point where unless you're literally sitting there watching it for the 20th time you don't really think oh that's a model that's really clever you just watch it you know what i mean you just sort of the first time I ever watched it, the only thing I noticed was the clash of the different eras of cars, because you see 50s, 40s, and 30s cars. But then I didn't by the time. The cars? I noticed the clothes, though. Oh, yeah, same thing. Yep. But then by the time you're starting to think that, you get the line from the stranger, like I said, it just disposes of it all. Yeah. Where they actually, where they actually say, this city's ours. We made it. We made Early... it from the best bits. Early on in the film, too. So it's not like I said, it's not like the American film, that would be the big payoff. No, yeah, that, that's, just, big, that's just, yeah. The big twist, the reveal is something yeah. that uh, American yeah. films do a lot. Too much. Uh, and what they should do is reveal that at the, at the um, middle and then move on from there and yeah. have the characters react to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dark City, you start with the goldfish, which is Murdoch, of course. Its bowl is broken. Then it goes. But you see, the thing about the goldfish's Murdoch thing is it doesn't end up free. It just ends up in the bathtub, which is just a bigger bowl. So that's one of the things about Proyas uh, and Goya. They, they agreed early on they had to. Murdoch is the protagonist, but he is not the hero. Who He's is not, the hero? I don't think there is one in this film. That's fair. I think, I, think, I think the closest would be the scientist. He was the one that freed Murdoch and tried to do all the other stuff. Or Murdoch got freed and he's like, oh, good. Here's a great opportunity. But he's the only one who, despite some moments where you'd say he's morally, you know, questionable. Overall, he does conform to the wise wizard Merlin, helpful sort of guy. The Obi-Wan, I guess, in modern terms. He's the Obi-Wan or Obi-Wan character who imparts knowledge, gives the quest, sees it fulfilled, maintains it and so on. Um, 
because Murdoch isn't even, of course, Murdoch, is it? He wasn't Murdoch the day before. That's the thing. Such a great line. They uh, they made they wanted to make a murder a murderer, and instead um, they made their enemy. Yeah. How did, did you they watch get those powers? Sorry. Did they explain how they got the powers? Or the is strangers. That the thing that happened. The strangers. The strangers had the powers. They they have their powers because they come from an earlier Antelope. So they became trapped in this universe, whether they're fallen angels or just something extra dimensional. They came into a flawed or fallen universe and they have no soul. So they don't understand their own nature well enough to understand what they're missing properly. So in an insectoid kind of way, they just worry away at things and their power is purely that of being able to step outside the box, which is the cosmos. Murdoch, you never understand or are told anything about how he got that power, except the one line where the scientist says, you've messed around and messed around and messed around with us so much that you finally created a kind of mutant. Like he says to them, in all these experiments that you've done, it's almost implied like it's a kind of evolutionary effect. But um, something Proyas said is that when they contact us, a little bit of us and them mingle. So perhaps the constant messing by the strangers, mm-hmm. a little bit of their reality alteration has rubbed off. But this gets into um, Gnosticism and um, goetic beliefs where as above, so below and so on. The strangers constantly using their demiurgic powers demonstrates that those powers exist within the context of the film world. Therefore, if you can become as the strangers are, then you will gain their powers. That's, you, that's cool. Now, um, what, now, what are the strangers? They're manipulative, murderers, and basically... So, so what is Murdoch? They make a human into the functional equivalent of one of them in terms of what he's doing in the city. Because his, the thing that he leaves is a, is a spiral. It's their spiral. Mm-hmm. So, so they, they've done these crazy experiments so long they've started to put too much of themselves into what they're experimenting on. And Murdoch's so the one that broke free. Somehow changed enough. And then with the help of the scientist as the midwife gains their power to tune. And isn't it fascinating that it's called tuning? It is. Um, Fine yeah. tuning like an engine. Yeah, tuning. With all the implications about harmony and discord. and Yeah. But it's just an, ex- it's an extraordinary film because it's a classic text. It's got an unfolding text. It isn't simple multi-layered you literally you could say this of hot fuzz and other completely different films in different genres but every time you watch it you see something new because there's that much in it there's that much packed in it and that's why everybody involved was so proud of it and gutted when the studio abandoned it i i want to live in a parallel world where this one got like tons of marketing behind it and um got all the success i wonder what what the sequels that they definitely would have done would have yeah. been like I, I don't know they're making a sequel now it's at least in development it's been green lit so um god alone knows what that's going to be like in 2019 2020 god I, alone knows i've never heard i haven't heard of them making a sequel oh yeah that's that's come up this month oh yeah. they're making a sequel and everything well i can't remember where it went it was new line when it was made i can't remember where it went after that it's not new line anymore but yeah i mean it, you know it, it could go into development health the thing about um, Dark City, though, like Alex Prius got interviewed a few times, mainly in French, at different French festivals and things he was doing. But 
they were saying um, about his work in general, like, uh, you know, what do you think about the world now? And he was saying, well, I think the visions in my films have come true. We're now living post 911 in, um, a he said, a very strange universe, very strange, impossible to make a film as strange as the real world. And it was interpreted basically as, oh, you know, Trump is, you know, the, us the usual way they spin it, you know, Trump is bad. The whole the whole world's crazy and evil and you know you can't trust governments and um the u the usual kind of bland simplistic thing but he didn't mean that no he, didn't mean, he, he said, really, really didn't mean that he meant that mean? he he meant that things were as he said in another interview things are bleeding through at a more and more rapid pace things like the strangers things like the crow um this the barrier between life and death is relaxing for some reason and things are coming through from the world of dreams and symbols the Jungian world of archetypes archetypes are manifesting now in the world more and more quickly and the and the central power in dark city of, of reality alteration uh -huh. the, ability, the ability to actually alter what we consider to be the physical world is no different of course from what the secret if you remember that oh, um, yeah. yeah women of a certain age love the secret that is the law of attraction and the law of sympathy. They both come from ritual magic. So what he was really saying is ritual magic has gone so mainstream that most people now think in that way. Magical thinking has become more normal. And in the process, people are beginning to understand that you can actually shape reality with your thoughts, that it's not, it's not fictional to say that mental attitude and mental will can affect the so-called physical world. That's what he meant. And you could see when he was being interviewed and they missed the point, he was very disappointed. And then they just moved on to like, oh, and you know, what are you here for? Oh, I'm here for such and such a film. And, you know, they just moved on. And I think that's why Dark City, even if the studio had backed it in and promoted it, I don't think it would ever have been, it could have been a commercial success to an extent. I don't think it would ever have engaged because where it really parts company with a film like The Matrix is The Matrix. Eh? The Matrix <laughs> falls back quickly onto superhero tropes and it makes it accessible and really quite safe it's confronting for people who don't really like to think about these things a lot to an extent and then it's it's easing you back into good versus evil you know it's sophisticated compared to a lot of films but it's still not actually sophisticated whereas dark city is really really in your face about a lot of goetic stuff a lot of real occult stuff and real occult experiences, sort of sleep disorder nightmares and things like that. And nobody is ever going to fully embrace that because um, the, the world of dreams and nightmares is real because mm -hmm. it, can, it can affect our physical health. It can affect the physical world. It can dictate what people do. You can die in your sleep because of it. So it's real. And then the idea of Shell Beach, like he said at the time, when they thought it might be a hit or they were, they were doing at least the publicity for it, he gave an interview in Sydney and said, um, We've all got a shell beach. And the, um, the interactive tie-in website for Dark City had a shell beach game. I haven't checked for years if the website's even up. I bet it isn't. But there was a new line tie-in website for Dark City, one of the first ones that had a tie-in web, um, where you went on a quest for shell beach by clicking on things on the screen. And the basic message of that was the same as in his interview, where he said, we've all got a shell beach. It's a place we've never been to that we remember. And even if it was real, it isn't the way we remember it. It couldn't be. It's a type of unrecapturable past that never existed. So you're being nostalgic for something that didn't exist, but that you can bring into existence. And that was what he thought was the central message of the film. Now, 
interesting again, really, because yes, it's important in the film, but given that that's what he really sees as a central message and what's so important on a personal level, uh-huh. fascinating, fascinating to see what characters say about Shell Beach and what, and what the Murdoch character says about, you know, like when he's going through the little um, homemade book that he's supposed to be made as a boy and it's blank. And then he, um, he fills it up. He fills it up. Uh, that was really good. Cause it's like, it, it, it was his mind fighting for his yep. childhood yep. and being nostalgic. I never trust nostalgia. Uh, it's always a very positive. Um, well, it's a type of false memory, isn't it? Yeah. You're, you're um, equating being young with uh, good things happening and no one wants to remember bad things happening. So even if something's average, it's either the best or worst thing that's ever happened. And, and it leads to impossible standards. Exactly. If you, if you become too immersed in nostalgia, you're killing the future. Because a real future will never be able to be compared to an idealized past. That's what, that's not why, but like everyone's trying to do remakes and reboots. Yeah. To recapture the feeling of stuff they saw when they were kids. Yeah. But what they should do uh, is make movies that they would have liked when they were kids. Same feeling, but new material. Exactly. Like, imagine, like, um, this has a lot of elements like the main, uh, that are similar to the Matrix and Inception and uh, everything else. And the fact that this was uh, not successful is annoying, but, like, it exists. Yeah. And everyone can track it down. It's on Google Movies. Everyone needs yeah. to watch this uh, yeah. just to see where a lot of things come from. Yeah, it was very influential. It really was. You can uh, see that it was. Once, once you've watched Dark City and you check the year of production, year of release, you can see it was influential. It's, it's the precursor to a lot of things. It's a precursor to stuff out of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, even. Things, things as silly as that. Oh, uh, sidebar, the best moment in Buffy the Vampire Slayer is when one of the vampires is like, I am immortal, nothing can kill me. And she just has a fucking rocket launcher and just yeah, blows him up. The judge. Yeah, the judge. Yeah, I, I love that because it's it's showing that, yeah, you're immune to states or whatever, but we have rocket launches now, so fuck you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really like Dark City. I think it's really interesting, and I'm sure that I missed like 60% of it. But you can watch it again. That's the beauty of uh-huh. it. I'll definitely watch it again. And, and this is one of those films where even when you know the twists, it doesn't actually matter because it's played and performed from the beginning like a Shakespearean play where everybody who's gone to the theatre more than a few times, you know the story or you've already looked it up. So it's not like the story itself is going to be this giant surprise. But how you get there and the just phenomenal performances of most of the people in the film, wow. They, they're, just, they're worth just watching again and again. I mean, um, they're, ju- they're just astonishing. I mean, the Sutherland scientist character um, there's just some amazing stuff there going on with how he, how he, how he does his acting in this. Just, just amazing. Really quite subtle, which is something he normally isn't because he's normally in American films. And Rufus Sowell as um, Murdoch. Yeah, yeah. I, and, yeah, I just, really hope that people watch this. Um, it deserves more love than it gets. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think a bit like uh, Blade Runner in the end, people have caught up to it now. That's good. 
I think Dark City's time's come. And in an age where you can easily download or watch or whatever, I don't mean illegally, but I mean, you know, it's available in lots of formats. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think it'll repay watching, and I think a lot of people will watch it. And for horror fans, it's absolutely a horror film. Um, it, it is definitely a horror film. There's no question about that. But it's psychological horror for the most part. Um, yeah, I didn't get so much scared as... Uh, it's just nasty in parts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's... um. It's very existential, properly existential, not just being pretentious. But in terms, of, in terms of what you said about nostalgia, I think um, there's a lot of hatred in the Star Wars community now between the so-called fandom menace and um, people who actually like the sequels. And I, I don't like the sequels. And I don't like the prequels. I like the original films. I don't think the rest of them is necessary. Having said that, I think a lot of the real passion, the real hate, on both sides, but particularly the people who like the sequel, uh-huh. is, well, some of the fandom menace too, is this nostalgia thing you were talking about. Um, they are arguing over two different visions of nostalgia, one of them being that we never have to grow up and so the new films can be the same kind of pablum that they remember the original films as being. In other words, just this endless young adolescent hazy consequence free life even if you're in your 40s or your 50s or your 60s whereas a lot of the fandom menace the sensible members of the fandom menace are really just craving new things that make them feel as happy as the older films did and and you can see this battle over nostalgia and what it means in comics star wars star trek a lot of different things and it's become a real issue and to bring it back to dark city it's really a shell beach argument it's the argument over there's no such place you need to grow up over, well, we can have a shell beach. Whether it existed or not, we can, we can make one. Yeah, and that's literally what they do at the end. Uh, the shell beach doesn't exist, so he makes one. And it's different to what he remembers, but it's similar. And he, I like that it's not actually there. Um, she's, he's like, where's shell beach? He, it, no, it is there, but he says, where's shell beach? And... They and she points to it and he's like, it's over there. And what they do is they're like, do you just want to get coffee or something? I forget what he says, but they turn away from Shell Beach. That's right. And go back to the city. That's right. Which is a, such a good image. Is it enough for him that it's there? Uh, I think that he built it, right? And uh, then once he had the chance to go to it, he saw her and he's like, I don't need Shell Beach. I, but I want that- her. But is that because Shell Beach represents his childhood and so he completes himself and then can have a normal relationship? I don't know. You see, a film that even gets you to ask that question is a very good film. A film that doesn't give an obvious answer once that question's been asked. Yeah. Like, I'm not confident on either one. Either he's like, okay, good. My child was there and I can move forward away from it. But I think that the shot of them walking away from Shell Beach and turning their backs to it was very deliberate. Oh, of course. As a great, and it is a great final shot uh, of the movie. It really is. Gives you proper closure. Of course, there's a third, much more sinister option, which is that he's just taken the place of the strangers and now he's the puppet master. He wants the beautiful, sexy, loving wife, so he makes one. But Doesn't matter what. The thing is know. that she doesn't have memories. Uh, with him I think that if that was the case she'd had then immediately he'd inject her with uh, false memories but remember he's created a new calendar now there's the passage of time he has the luxury of playing the entire thing out with her oh yeah um he has total power 
You feel um, what I mean? One of the sequels that I'd want to have is him being corrupted by Total Power. But he may already be corrupted. He might be. I want to see that sequel. Because you see, he doesn't get injected with something that fully corrects him. He gets injected with memories that he was lacking. So he may still be the, um, like the stranger says, the unpleasant truth. That may not have really changed. Plus those memories, I can't, uh, uh, so plus those memories have, uh, the doctor keeps saying that you have total power and you can shape this however you want. Yeah. And even if you know those are false memories, that's still memories of someone telling you your entire life that you're basically a god. Well, yes. I love it. Have you read uh, The NeverEnding Story? Yes. Yeah? You read the yeah. book? Yes, yes. So for those who've just seen the movie, it end, the movie ends with uh, Bastion Bathsad books uh, flying away on Falcor to defeat bullies, all fun kid stuff. What a great film. In the book, he gains the power to create. To the the reason it's called Never Running Story is because like he creates new story, mm. and he gets corrupted by absolute power. And then there's a war, and he has to fight, and then he loses all his memories, and he tries to take over the world. And then um, the other guy that uh, is Bastion, that is the main character of the Never Running Story. Uh, the book is like uh, has to fight Bastion and then rebuild Fantastica and everything goes to hell. If that's the second half of this movie, I mean. Well, it's a classic example of um, the story ending at a high point. Dark City, I mean. Yeah. It's, it's ending at a high point, but um, it's a high point that can't last. If they made a sequel, then that would make this ending not work as well. I just don't think it needs a sequel, really. Oh, no, it doesn't need a sequel. I honestly don't think it does. If they did a series, you know, the Netflix-type series, and they started it from the beginning of the story again, first of all, they'd make it woke. They'd put in the SJW stuff, and I'm just not a fan of that. I'm all for diversity and all of, all of the good things, absolutely. But the particular... Um, the way they very, do it. Well, hyper-politicised interference with storytelling, I just think is never good. It wasn't good in Soviet Russia, and it's not good in the modern Anglosphere. And it leads to bad stories, bad films, and a lot of bad blood, because the audience don't like it. There's Everyone a lot of fight back. wants things to be safe and yeah. absolutely non-offensive. Yep. And how can you do that? It's, it can't be done. And what, I, what Disney's doing right now is censoring all their movies. They're getting rid of all <laughs> the racist depictions of uh, people, yeah. Uh, they got rid of those crows from Dumbo. Yeah. And like, that's a quarter of your movie gone. Like, that's a boring ass film. And then the crows show up and then the elephant flies and gets drunk. Um, I just think you've got to leave the past alone. You've got to own the downside. You've got to leave the past alone. It doesn't mean you need to make a, you know, questionable racist film now, but you just can't pretend it never happened. It's, it's downright dangerous to change things too. You, you've just got to let things be and then move forward. You don't, you don't have to be so sort of... That they're overly, I think they're overly aggressive in how they do it, and it's causing a lot of pushback. But I think Dark City doesn't need a sequel, and if it ever had one, it would have to be based on another dreamscape or nightmarescape about what happens in the city, whether the city decays or, uh-huh. or what. You don't need a sequel to, um, to Dark City. Just watch The Matrix or Inception or that one where yeah. they're wearing black hats. 
and going through doors and controlling people's minds. Yep. Just watch and the, and hundreds of other movies that do a similar thing. And I have to say, I, I like The 13th Floor, which you mentioned in the private yeah. chat. So um, the marketing for The 13th Floor made it look very Matrixy and it's very yes. similar to The Matrix. So out of the three, I think that's one's most likely to be a ripoff. Um, the 13th Floor is very odd and it's actually based on a science fiction book called Report from Probability B, which goes back to the 1970s, I'm pretty sure. And um, you can tell you can tell it's got those roots. But then I think in a hasty decision to try and me too and copy the then current sort of vibe, they made it more overtly Matrix-like. You know what I mean? They uh-huh. sort of, they went for that kind of thing. And that was a huge mistake because leaving that little touch aside, it's got some fantastic stuff in it. It really, really does. No one's going to pick the 13th floor. You want to discuss it for a bit? Because the 13th floor, I find... Um, to be interesting because it has the twist that I thought the Matrix should have had, where they're, they're, where they're also in a simulation. Yeah. And I thought that, so they, they have the Matrix, they build their own Matrix, but they're also in a Matrix. Yeah. And what I thought the twist of the second Matrix movie should have been is that the city of, um, fuck their city. Zion. Uh, Zion, thanks. Zion should have been... Uh, that whole thing should have been within a second matrix. Yeah. Because Neo has, like, is basically Jesus. Wish fulfillment powers. So yeah. it, would have been, it would have been logical to break that, subvert it by having somebody give him another reality check saying, but you, you must have at least suspected. I mean, no one, no one can do what you do. I mean, do, do I would have wanted Neo to be a program. Like, not even, not even a human being. No, not a human being, because like it's said in the second one that, and I'm definitely going to get more into this when we actually do the Matrix episode. Yeah. But it said that Neo uh, is an anomaly in the Matrix, and it's dot, part, dot, dot. and it's yeah. part of the, uh, and every time it reboots, there's always someone with the powers. But on the screens, it's all the, it's all Neo, it's all Keanu yeah. Reeves. Yeah. So, they basically just have a program that gave them the chosen one. It could comment on the chosen one narrative. It could comment on everything else. And it would have been much more interesting for the sequels to have it be in the, there be a second matrix. Yes. Also the chosen one narrative sucks and I hate it. Well, it's, it's, it's over familiar, isn't it? It's very, yeah. even Spider-Man was the chosen one. And the entire point of his character is that he's not special. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and, and, the, and, the, and the funny thing now, you've got a new subgenre because of all the tipping on, tiptoeing on eggshells and wanting to have, you know, diverse representation and tick boxes rather than just tell stories. There's now a special subgenre and even um, Terminator Dark Fate is, is one. The Picard Trek series is one. Not just a chosen one anymore, folks, but a lightly built brown-skinned girl must be your chosen one which so even, like it's fine I to mean, do stories with them but like it's the problem that not every rebooting. single film though god almighty they're I mean, rebooting everything so like john connor has been but, but, but in the same way it's not just that they're rebooting it they're rebooting it in the same way i know i, mean, I, I hate Val- terminator i hate terminator. Val- valkyrie is uh, a lightly built brown skinned girl MJ out of Spider-Man is a lightly built brown skin girl. But MJ is fine. MJ is fine because like uh, it's a normal 
character. What what matters is that when they change the story to fit it, yeah, like um, John Connor is the hero. He's yeah. the chosen one. And he's not even in, apparently, he's not even going to be in the new Terminator movie because fuck him. No, he's, he's killed at the beginning. I oh, God. I think, it's, I think it's a classic 1920 slapstick sort of wow, wow, blam, no more John Connor. Next. Oh, well, it turns out the new chosen one is this girl who's an illegal immigrant or equivalent. Um, so you've got the, the evil Terminators running around in an ICE uniform, a Border Patrol uniform, of course. Very no, subtle stuff. Super subtle. So subtle. So yeah. subtle. I mean, and that's my, that's my politics, and I don't like them doing it because I just think it's, it's, it's just so crude. It just turns people off, whatever you're trying to say to people. It's I mean, very boring, too. It worked, oh. it worked precisely once with Logan. Uh, yeah. with Laura being his clone because that fit the story that they were telling and the illegal yeah. experiments that they were doing. Yeah. That worked brilliantly. Well, you don't need to make a lot of effort to make it fit anyway, but they make no effort. Uh, they just make no effort. It's, it's, um, it's going to lead to a lot of tears because a lot of these films are going to crash, especially the genre films. A lot not, of why film- pe- not why people go and see genre films for starters. A lot of people are already being... Turn off. I don't care about uh, Star Wars at all. Not no, because the Star Wars films are bad, but because the fan base are a bunch of whiny crybabies. They, they really have become the poster child for toxic fandom. Because uh-huh. on, and, I, and I mean both sides. I don't just mean the fandom menace people who are critical of the new films, and rightly so, in my opinion. I mean the supporters of the new films as well. I mean, wishing death on people or I mean, just... just it's it's a film, you know. It's a film. It's, yeah. it's not real. It's, it's you can you know it can have an emotional impact on you. It's meant to, but at the end of the day, when the lights go up, it's just a film, folks. Yeah, one of the film. one of the things is that there's a thing saying just let people like things, which is their way of saying shut the fuck up. And yeah. my response is just let me hate things because I don't care. Well, the other thing is that. Um, and this has become entrenched on both sides. This constant thing they talk about, fandom, 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 fans of this, fans of that. Lawrence Miles talked about this years ago about Doctor Who. He said, when Doctor Who becomes popular in America and it'll become fetishized, it'll become an object of fandom, which is a very un-British and indeed un-Australian kind of thing, where this obsessional, obsessive-compulsive devotion to something, which is really just a work of fiction, is really quite disturbing and sick. And he accurately predicted that that would lead to Doctor Who, the character becoming a god, that the power inflation would have to continue to satisfy the cravings of these obsessive fans who centred their life around it. You need something else in your life besides quote-unquote fandom. I mean, William Shatner, of all people, said this to Star Trek fans decades ago, and they were up in arms about it because he said to them, get a life. You have to have a life outside it. Right? And I'm saying this as somebody who is absolutely soaked in the media, works in it, distributed, you know, works are out there now, I'm a professional, but you still have to have something outside it. You just you absolutely do. And people who are only consumers must be very, very careful not to become obsessive about what you consume because you're, you're, you're becoming, when, when people do this, one becomes emotionally stunted in a lot of other ways. And it, it denies healthy contact to people when they go to war over films. And at the end of the day, I tried to explain to both sides of the fandom menace thing. The vast majority of people, even people who quote unquote love a film, are really only casual consumers. They'll go and see an Avengers film in the cinema. 
and really like it. They'll just see it once and that's it. And then they'll do something else, walk the dog, go to a football match. The fandom thing is a kind of subcultural ghetto with very violent outcomes, usually emotional, occasionally physical. There's been assaults and fights and so on um, and doxing and stalking and everything. Um, when it's like that, everybody involved on both sides needs to walk away. Everybody involved, not just the people who love the Star Wars films and the pe or the people who hate them. They all need to check themselves because that's not being a critic of film uh, or a film aficionado or even a genre aficionado or a fan of horror films or whatever. That is mental illness in the uh, beginning stage because you're sealing yourself off from normal responses. And it's something I, it's really worried the hell out of me over the last year because um, if you look at any of the fandom menace or the pro Star Wars stuff, good God almighty, like um, Disney doesn't care. Do, you, do they think Disney cares at all? But the weirdest thing about it is that when you're critical of Disney buying literally everything and creating a monopoly and doing vertical integration, which is illegal, um, <laughs> you're, they act as though you just said that their favorite movie was terrible. Yeah. Like, it's the exact same thing to uh, fans of Disney, and it's terrible. It is. You but... Can you can Disney employs Disney employs shills. It's not just people who like Disney and do that. Disney employs an internet reaction team the way a lot of these companies, governments and other people do. And they fuel the hate. They don't just defend Disney. They fuel a constant litany of hate against people who cross the line by daring to criticise Disney. That's got to stop. Being obsessed with anything is not a healthy way to live. It works knowing that uh and when your love for a movie involves you hating anyone for any yeah. reason yeah it's not good yeah. um well, well, case in point case in point today we've uh -huh. discussed the matrix you're yeah. far more pro matrix than i will ever be right? yeah I have, I have a, i have a, i have a harsh opinion of that and the filmmakers right but we're not going fandom menace pro disney nutball here because oh, no. You, you've got to keep your sense of perspective. You know, at the exactly. end of the day, the end of the day, it's not my boat. You can say it's going to float. I can say it's going to sink, but it's not our boat. Neither of us are in the boat. It doesn't matter at the end of the day to either of us. The Matrix so, has already found its success. Nothing we'll say will change that. Plus, I'm talking with the Matrix fan yeah, next week, that's so right. it's but, fine but, by me. But, um, but, the, but the point is, we're not so emotionally invested in it. No. Uh, that that not, somehow not it turns into like football hooligans for genre films, because that's what it's really like now. It's like football hooligans. It's, it's the same kind of crazy emotional attachment to something that couldn't care less if you lived or died. Exactly. My favourite movie is The Princess Bride. And if oh. anyone ever says that they hate The Princess Bride, I'll be like, all right, what's your favourite movie? And then we can discuss their favourite movie. I've got to say Princess Bride's in my top three, and the book oh. as well. I love the book. Good man. It's fantastic. And I, and I love the life is pain. Anyone who tells you different is selling something. I like that because it's clear because like when, when dialogue like that goes out of the, um, out of the time, I like to think that it's the uh, grandfather telling uh, the kid uh, wise advice. Well, in the book, it's actually the giant character. He's, I think it's his father from memory. One of his parents passes away and the other one sits him down and says, you know, you're, you're enormous. You're a giant. You're going to have to make your way in the world based on your size. 
and um, the giant's this very soft-hearted character in the book and he's crying. And it's the parent who says that to the giant character when he's still a child. Life is pain. Anyone who tells you different is selling something. And the book is just littered with more of them. I mean, a lot of the good dialogue in the film is out of the book. I need to, um, I need to talk to someone about The Princess Bride. And the end of the book. Oh, my goodness. Oh. I like the fact that The Princess Bride is a shit book. And what do that you mean? The grandfather, uh, the son of the, uh, he's read the book to his kid and was like, that's a, it's a terrible book. No book. <laughs> my, my dad must have edited it to cut out all the boring bits. Like there's 45 pages of Buttercup's etiquette lessons. Yeah. All that shit. I love that. It's, it's, but, the, but the end of the actual novel that the film's based on, where they, where they say, um, oh, you know, you'd like to think that they lived happily ever after, that Prince something was still out there. And every night Wesley had to walk the battlements wondering if this is a time when the world's greatest hunter would take his revenge and so on. It's fantastic. I, uh, it's a, I, I, I want to... Oh, sorry. Um, Got a business call coming. Oh, that's all right. Uh, we can stop it now anyway. Uh, I've done my mandatory talk about Princess Bride uh, <laughs> per episode. So uh, that was fun. It was a fun movie. Um, next week, we're going to do The Matrix uh, wow. with someone else. Uh, it's, that's going to be fun as well. How, um, how long are you going to go on that one, do you think? Uh, th- uh, I, mean, the, I mean, The Matrix, you know, whether you like it or not as a film, it's, and it's, it's not really relevant whether you like it or not. Exactly. It is a, it is a seminal film which has had a worldwide cultural impact that I don't think very many films have ever had. Ever. Yeah, I've got, we've got um, three in the main series. Then there's the Animatrix. There's all the queer stuff. There's all the religious stuff. Yeah. All that stuff i got to talk about and research some more. And, and, and also a classic example of a film with diversity and a lot of positive messages. Not entirely, because some of them fall back into old tropes. But a lot of um, positive messages, a lot of diversity, a lot of acceptance type stuff. Yeah, without um, it being forced. Yeah, exactly. Without it being forced in any way, shape or form. Uh, yeah, because, I, I can't... Because, it's, because it's worth remembering with The Matrix, there were not a lot of black mentor characters at the time when Morpheus came out. I think it became but a trope later. It did, it did become a trope later, but not when that came out. Oh, good. Um, Contem- contemporary with that, you've got Blade, the original Blade film. Uh-huh. What colour is the mentor character in that? He's white. Whistler's white. And he didn't need to be. It's, uh, it's a great... Uh, it, it'll be a fun discussion. This was a great discussion, and I'm glad that I saw it, and I'm really glad that it wasn't similar to Matrix. It has some crossover, but I'm glad uh, that it wasn't like a one-to-one comparison. Look, look my, my, my things about Matrix versus Dark City are filmmaker-type things. Oh, fair they're, enough. They're, they're inside baseball, lost in the weeds. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not what somebody watching both films would do. That's fair enough. Um, so, do you know what I mean? They're not, they're not what, a normal viewer, not what a normal viewer would get out of it in any way, shape, or so. Yeah, all the inside baseball stuff. I, and I saw some similarities because they might have come from, like, similar influences or whatever. That doesn't matter. Watch them both. What um, actually happened, I'll tell you what actually happened, the actual inside baseball thing. Okay. Special, effect, special effects supervisor worked on both. Oh. And he, and he also dropped in on Blade. And there was, quote, unquote, cross-fertilization because Blade had bullet time before The Matrix. They were doing their bullet time oh, test really? footage. Yeah, they oh, did their no. bullet time test footage first. And, um, yeah, but, but really, iron sharpens iron. 
out of that competitiveness and cross-fertilization, we got three good films, Blade, Dark City, and The Matrix. We got the equivalent of an Avengers epic, at, which is The Matrix. We got an equivalent of an art house film, which is Dark City. And we got a classic tentpole movie in Blade with a black lead, which I think was so crucial, so very important. So really, whatever the faults of each film or who likes or dislikes them, we, we as audience members, we didn't lose. Yeah, we all benefited. And uh, if, absolutely. And if The Matrix, uh, Dark City and, uh, and Blade all came from them ripping each other off, then well, we all rip let's off. Just say, let's just say cross-fertilization. Yeah. Instead. That's, that's, but like, yeah. this is why we need to stop remaking stuff. Yeah. Um, this has been a blast. I, um, it was really fun talking with you. I, I love uh, Dark City. I want to see it again. Oh, great. Um, do you have uh, any uh, anywhere that the people can find you? Uh, mainly on Twitter. My um, current series is on Amazon Prime. That's Philip K. Dix, dot, dot, dot. And then there's Philip K. Dix, Rude, Philip K. Dix, Shadrach Jones and the Elves. That's on Amazon Prime already. Um, I'm currently working with Kat Bellatrix, voice actress, uh, on The Cats of Ulthar and H.P. Lovecraft. Um, short animated film that will be out on Amazon Prime as well and other than that I upload everything to YouTube and fetish.space f-e-t-i-c-h-e dot space but really I've already got a distribution deal so I'm just living the dream now I don't really need to sort of pimp a YouTube channel or anything so it's all good man all good brilliant I'd like to thank Jonathan for bringing in Dark City it was a lot of fun now, normally we do our normal credits, but I'd like to make a announcement, a very important announcement. I am renaming the Aussie Nose podcast to Cinematic Adventures. And we are going to introduce a new permanent co-host called Jackie. She was on a few episodes, including Marvel and Endgame. And while I have loved talking to everyone, having a permanent co-host will make this podcast even better. So hopefully very soon we'll be able to introduce and start a new podcast on this feed and it will be better than ever.